we're starting a four-week series that will take us with Jesus as he heads to the cross, burial, and resurrection. We call that Easter weekend. It's, this isn't a journey that we'd want to take ourselves, and we're happy that Jesus took it for us, because it's almost, almost too much for us to even think about, because we know the pain, we know the suffering, we know what Jesus went through as he went to the cross. We know it. We can hardly even bear it, especially if you watch The Passion of the Christ. There is nothing more vivid than what took place there, and it is pretty accurate as to what was going on with Jesus. But here's what I want you to think about this morning. I want us to think about it collectively. We often think that Jesus' purpose of going to the cross was for us, that we are the reason for Jesus going to the cross. But here's the news. We were not. Now, before you decide to pick up stones and stone me, hear me out a little bit. Okay? The reason that we believe that Jesus went to the cross for us is that we believe that everything is about us. It's all about me. How come my needs aren't being met? How come you're not serving me? How come you're not helping me? How come I'm not winning the lottery? How come God's not blessing me with tons of money? How come God's not blessing me by making my grass grow without any weeds in it? It's all about me. And if we were to really be honest about our meanness, we would even probably have to confess that we sometimes think that God really couldn't get this job done if it wasn't for me. It's me. I don't know how you did it without me before this, God, but boy, you're sure lucky to have me. And so we think it's all about me, all about us. And if you were to read through the gospel account of Jesus' journey to the cross, you would soon realize that Jesus' main purpose for going to the cross isn't at all about us. Now, some of you might be shocked to hear that. But let me just help you walk through this because as we get into John's gospel, that's where we're going to be primarily over the next four weeks. We're going to get to be a fly on the wall, as it were, when Jesus goes through his last hours on this earth as as. He is spending time with his disciples and it's just before the religious leaders come away and take Jesus down to this mock trial to convict him for being, well, just for being Jesus. And what we're going to find out is what his main purpose of going to the cross was all about. So let me help you understand that because I don't want you to be sitting here going like, What in the world is Pastor Ken talking about? I think he's lost his mind. Hasn't he read the Bible? Well, I want you to understand. I want you to get a hold of this right off the get-go because if you don't, you're going to miss something. So out of John chapter 17, it says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... Okay, let me just stop right there. So when we're praying... It's okay to go like this. You don't always have to go like this. You can go like this and you can look for your father in heaven just like Jesus did. Okay? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to 
all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is heading to the cross for what? The glory of God. The glory of his Father. That's what he is doing. He is headed to the cross for the glory of Christ. And and understand this, that God's glory always comes first. Before anything else. Before anything else can happen, before anything else can take place, it all has to be for the glory of God. Remember, we talked about that in 1 Corinthians. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is you do, do it for the what? That's right. So why did Jesus go to the cross? For the glory of God. It was for God's glory. Now that's a little bit more of a mind-blowing thing that we think about because we are so self-focused that we really believe that Jesus went there for me. And I don't mean to kind of pick on some of our recent songwriters, but there's a song that comes on, and I heard it the other day, and it says that like a rose trampled on the ground, as Jesus was on the cross, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing it, the last thing he thought of was me. Eh, not true. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. I mean, it's nice and it makes us feel good, warm and fuzzy all on the inside. But that's not what Jesus was all about. He was about his father's work. And by the way, this in John chapter 17, if you've never read John chapter 17 before, I want you to go home and read it this week. You don't have to read it, digest it all in one sitting, but it will be really helpful for you to read it because John chapter 17 is a conversation between Jesus and his dad, and it's the most intimate conversation we get to see in all of Scripture between Jesus and his father. And it's absolutely amazing. And so if you get, just take the chance and and take the time to go and do that. Now, as we look at this word glory, glorify, glorification, we may have a different idea about what that means than what the Bible teaches it or what the Bible means by it. And so this morning, uh, I want to talk about that before we get into to the rest of this. And as I was thinking about bringing this talk this morning to you, I was thinking about Jesus' trip down Glory Road, and I realized that I really needed to explain the glory of God to you. And so I started to think about the glory, the word glory, and how to define it and how to explain it to you. And I think that I'm a pretty smart fella, that I know a few things. But as I sat at my desk for like a half an hour, I came up with nothing to say in relation to how to describe the glory of God. I was, I was drawing a blank and I just couldn't explain it. And so I thought, well, I'm going to check out some guys who have been down this road a little bit longer than I have, a little bit further, and probably know a little bit more than I do. And so uh, I did a bunch of reading, and one of the guys that I read from, his name is John Piper. He's got this 
this whole thing on desiring God. He's written a book called Desiring God. And he gave me some real insight. And so I've got some stuff, and some of that comes from him. And so I want you, it's really important to understand this as we go through it. So we're going to look at this. And so defining the glory of God really becomes an impossible task because it's more like the word beauty than the word basketball. Now, if you were to bump into somebody who had no clue what basketball was, they had no idea what a basketball is, and they came to you and they said, could you explain to me, could you define for me what a basketball is? You'd go, yeah, no problem. I can tell you. It's about eight or nine inches round, and and it's made of leather and some rubber, and when you inflate it with air and you inflate it hard, you can bounce that ball because it's round, and you can bounce the ball, you can pass it to other people, you can run and bounce the ball, and at the other end of the room, there's, there's this hoop thing, and when you get down there, the goal is to take that round ball and throw it into the hoop. It used to be a basket, and that's why it's called basketball. And little people would go like, hey, I've got an idea of what it looks like. I've got an idea of what, it would, what a basketball looks like. You've defined it well for me. And they would be able to walk into a sporting goods store and they would go, this looks, this does not look like a basketball. Matter of fact, it's a football. This is a tennis ball and this is a soccer ball. Here, from the description that I got, is the basketball. They would know what it is. But now if you try and go and describe the word, let's just take, for instance, beauty. How do you describe beauty? Because... We all go like, man, that was so beautiful. But if you didn't see it, you had no clue what the beauty was. And so the more that we look at things, the more that we identify what is beautiful and what beauty looks like, we start going, that's it over there, and that's it over there, and that's it right there. And we all start to go like, yeah, that's beautiful. That's what beauty is. And so when we talk about the mountains of of the Wind River Mountains, We all have this picture in our mind because we have seen the beauty of the mountains that we identify with the beauty of the mountains. And so when it comes to looking and talking about um, the glory of God, it's, it's it's like trying to describe the word beauty. How do you find define glory? We have to try to define it because if we don't, we're just leaving it up for our, you know, our own imaginations to figure out what it looks like. And so here's the way I'm going to try and do it this morning. I'm going to take it and contrast it biblically with the word holy. And then the question we ask is, what's the difference between the holiness of God and the glory of God? And in doing that, I think we'll get a little bit of a handle on the nature of this term, the glory of God. So that's what we're going to do. The holiness of God, I think, is his being in a class by himself in his perfection and greatness and worth. His perfection and greatness and his worth are of such a distinct and separate characteristic that he is in a class by himself, infinite perfection, infinite greatness, and infinite worth. His holiness is what God is. 
And it's, it's something that nobody else is. Nobody else attains to the holiness of God. It's a quality of perfection that can't be improved upon. That can't be imitated. You cannot recreate it. It is incomprehensible, incomparable, and it determines all that he is and is determined by nothing from outside of himself. It signifies his infinite worth, his intrinsic infinite worth, his intrinsic infinite value. And now if you were to go to Isaiah chapter 6, it says that the angels were crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the next thing they say is this, the whole earth is full of His, and you might expect Him to say His holiness, but He doesn't say holiness. He says glory. Holiness is attached to God's glory. It's intrinsically holy. Intrinsically holy. Intrinsically holy. And the whole earth is filled with His glory. From which I will stab at a definition by saying, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of His holiness. It is the going public of His holiness. It is the way He puts His holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. Listen to the words from Leviticus 10. God says, I will be shown to be holy among those who are near me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So to see, to apprehend, and to reckon with his holiness is in some sense, perceive it, to see it, to see glory, and thus to glorify him. So here's my... I've got a couple of attempts that I'm going to make at defining this word. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The infinite beauty, and I'm focusing on the manifestation of his character and his worth and his attributes. All of his perfections and greatness are beautiful as they are seen. And there are many of them, and that is why we use the word manifold, many. Here it is in another sentence. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifest perfections. In Psalms 19.1, it says that the, hair, that the heavens are telling the glory of God. What does that mean? What does it mean the heavens are telling the glories of God. It means he is shouting at us. He shouts with the clouds. He shouts with the blue expanse. He shouts with the golden horizon. He shouts with the galaxies and the stars. He is shouting, I am glorious. That's what he is shouting. He says, open your eyes. Because it's like this, this expanse, only better if you know me. And the Bible says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. If you had eyes to see in this room right now, you would see the glory of God everywhere. And what would we need? We need eyes to see more than anything. 
the God of this world has opened the minds of those who are seeking Jesus to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the gospel. If they're not seeking it, they're not seeing it. If they're not seeking it, they're not hearing it. If they're not seeking it, they're not experiencing it. The glory of Christ. So when Jesus says in John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave to me, Jesus is saying, I embody the manifest beauty of the Father's holiness. No one has seen the Father. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what holiness looks like? You want to know what the holy character of God is? All you have to do is read about Jesus. Because Jesus and the Father are one. And so we see the holiness and the glory of God in Christ. And so now as Jesus is stepping into the hours, this is just hours before his death, the hours of humiliation, going to the cross, he is bringing the manifest beauty of the Father in the suffering he will endure and in his death on the cross because it brings the manifest beauty, glory of the Father to earth. The Father is glorified. And in turn, Jesus said, I will be glorified. And because the Father and the Son are both glorified, we benefit from it because we have salvation. You get that? Look, we think the cross makes us number one, but in reality, it makes Jesus and God number one and us number two. It's all about Jesus and the Father, and we're the recipients of what happens between the two of them. We are so blessed that Jesus did what he did. So the holiness of the glory of God the Father are found in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross to display the holiness and glory of God. And we are the beneficiaries of God's holiness and glory. That's what Easter is about. But Jesus, as a manifest presence of God, takes an unusual path to glory. Because he's on the road to glory right now in this passage. And we're going to get on this path with, G- with Jesus at his last night on earth. And it's known as the Last Supper. Now, if you absolutely knew that you had 15 hours to live, what would you do with those 15 hours? Because Jesus right now at the Last Supper has approximately 15, 16 hours before he's on the cross. What would you do with the last 15 hours of your life? Now, I know some guys that are going to go down, get a bank loan, go out, buy a Corvette, and go burn the rubber off of the tires for 15 hours. There are some other people that might jump on a plane, an airplane, take a flight to a place They've got on their bucket list so they can, they can take in and soak in all the magnificent beauty of creation that God has given to them. But I'm willing to bet that most of us in here would say, if I knew I had 15 hours left, what I would do is I would call my family, my closest friends. I'd call a caterer and say, bring the best food, bring the best wine. We're going to have a celebration 
of my life for the next 15 hours. And you would spend that time telling the people that you dearly love how much they mean to you, what they have brought to your life. You would express your love to them in as many ways as you could. And then during that time, as the time drew near for you to depart from this earth, you would say something to them in, in the way of a blessing. You would want to leave them with a blessing and maybe a little instruction on how to live life to its fullest for the glory of God. That's what I think most of us would do. That's what Jesus did. He took his and ate his last meal with the ones whom he loved and he gave, his, gave them words to live by. It's really interesting to me. Jesus knew this was his last meal on earth. This was the last time he was going to have a meal. He didn't get breakfast. He did not get lunch. He did not get his, his uh, last supper for execution. He didn't get any of that. And in the Last Supper, it's interesting to me that he chose his disciples to spend the last 15 hours with. His mom wasn't there. His brothers weren't there. None of his cousins were there. He spent the last 15 hours with his disciples. And so we're going to pick it up by looking at John chapter 13, and it says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now here's a picture of Jesus loving his disciples. And the crazy thing is that he loved all of them. He loved all of them. He loved Judas, who would betray him. He loved Peter, who was going to deny that he even knew Jesus. He loved Thomas, who said, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead until I have physical evidence to prove it to me. I have to touch the holes in his hands I have to put my hand in his side where the spear was thrust in. And here's Jesus having all of these disciples knowing that when the guards show up to take Jesus away, they're going to scatter, they're going to run, and they're going to hide, and Jesus is going to be left all alone. But yet, what it says right here is that he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. There wasn't anything that he... Because he already knew everything about them. And, there was, and in the knowledge that he had about his disciples, there was nothing, there was nothing that was going to separate his love from them. There was nothing they could do. There was nothing they could say. There was no behavior they had that was going to say, I am not going to extend my love to you because I know what you're going to do. Jesus didn't do that. You know, it's really important for us to delve into that, to understand, to get it into our minds what that love looks like. I mean, he's sitting around the table. and Now, now listen, he's not sitting around the table like we're going to do on 
uh, Easter morning when we have our Easter sunrise service and brunch together. We don't, they didn't pull up chairs and sit down and look at each other. What they did is the table was a little bit lower than our table. They had cushions that they reclined on and they would lean on their left side and reach for food with their right hand. Big round table. Everybody's looking at each other. Their feet are laying out back this way. So here's Jesus looking eyeball to eyeball to every one of those disciples. And the Bible tells us that he loved them to the end. What does that mean for us? I mean, really, what, what? We can say, that was really good of Jesus to do that. He is so nice. He is so kind. Wow, what a, what a great heart he has for his disciples. And it's kind of like we're saying, whoop-de-doo. Well, where this really comes to us is that, remember, these are the disciples. Now, I'm going to make an assumption that all of you are disciples of Jesus too. That you're walking with Christ. You're learning to grow in Christ. You have this relationship with Jesus. You want more of Jesus, kind of like the disciples. And so I'm, I'm making an assumption that all of you are disciples. This is the part that presses in on us pretty hard because there are people who come and attend here in this community of faith. And we kind of look around and we go like, oh, what are they doing in church? We kind of have this, this thought in our head that you know, I know that I'm supposed to love them, but really, I mean, do you know the things that they've said? Do you know the things that they've done? Do you know how they behave? Do you? I'm not really sure that they're all that serious about their relationship with Jesus. And so we kind of take a step back from, from that relationship. Matter of fact, when you get further into the Gospel of John here in these last 15 hours, Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you. That you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have loved one for another. Now, you, I'm, I'm pressing in, I'm going to press in a little bit hard on you here. I am going to say some things that might make you feel a little uncomfortable. But you need to understand that in this discomfort that you're having, I'm trusting that it's not coming from me, but from the Holy Spirit. Who are those people? That you go like, I would never spend time with them. They come to this church. I will never spend time with them. I don't want to talk with them. I don't want to engage them. I don't like them. I don't love them. And I think that they are probably just a bunch of phonies. And so why should I spend time with a phony? I want the real deal. Because we're supposed to love those people. Jesus did it. He looked right into the eyes of Peter. He looked right into the eyes of Thomas. He had John sitting right next to him. He had Judas on the other side of him. And he looked at them and he loved them to the end. And so I'm telling you right now that if there is a name that was brought to your mind as I was talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, if that, there was a person's name that came to your mind, that was God speaking to you. That was God saying, you need to deal with this. This is an issue. It's not just an issue between you and them. It's an issue between me and you. How do you deal with something like that? Well, the Bible says that 
If you know to do the right thing and you don't do it, that's sin. So what the Alpha Bible says is that we're supposed to confess our sins so that we'll be healed emotionally, physically, mentally. And so what I want you to do right now, this is really a little bit unorthodox for me and maybe even for you. We're going to take about a minute, maybe two, and it's going to be absolutely dead silent because if God has brought a name to your heart, I want you to confess your sin of not loving them. I want you to ask the Father to forgive you. Then I want you to ask God to empower you to love them the way he loves them, all right? We're going into confession right now. If you do it out loud, I'm going to praise God. good news is this, that God is faithful. What you have asked for, he will deliver. What you have asked for, he will deliver. I want to move on now. I want to look at what is next in these verses. It says, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now, I don't want to get caught up in all the conjecture and speculation about Jesus and, and, and the devil putting the thought already to betray him. All I want to do is simply say this, is that it's mentioned here because this is the fulfillment that was of a prophecy that was made about Jesus of how he was going to die and who was going to betray him. One of his own would betray him. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But what I really want us to focus our attention on is the next phrase. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus absolutely knew who he was, where he had come from, and where he was going, and that all things, all things were given to his hand. Jesus wasn't second-guessing anything about what was going to happen. He knew what the outcome was. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the path he was taking. And he absolutely knew that he, and he was absolutely convinced that he came from the Father. He is Jesus, the Son of God. He is God in flesh. He knew that. To the core of his being. He knew that he went, came from Father in heaven. And he also knew that after he had accomplished all this. That God had given him to do. Take this path of humiliation on the road of glory. That at the end of that he was going back to his father. Absolute, there was nothing that could shake him off of that. It didn't matter what the enemy tried to tempt him with. It didn't matter what the enemy was whispering in his ear. There was nothing 
that was going to shake Jesus from knowing who he was and where he was going and what was going to happen. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is this important to us to know that Jesus had this confidence in who he is? Why is that so important to us? Because if you know that you are unquestionably loved by God, that he calls you by name and tells you that you are his child, then you will never have to believe another lie the enemy whispers in your ear. You may have heard these whispers in your ear that you're not smart enough or that you are not lovable or that you have nothing to offer to others or that your sin disqualifies you and your life is a mess and you might as well embrace the mess and live in it and stop trying to be something you're not. Those are the lies that will keep you sidelined from knowing the glory of Jesus. And, and, but if you believe that God cares more about you than you care about yourself and that he has given you everything you need to be complete, then those lies become like the morning fog and it's laying low on the valley. And as the sun rises over the hilltop and the sun shines on the fog, it dissipates and it is gone. And you live in the sunshine and you walk in newness. Because the lies are just lies. Here's how it works. Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. God knows your sin and calls you by your name. And that's where we stand. We stand in the calling of our Father. Daughter, son, come, be with me, be with me, be with me, listen to me, walk with me. And all we need to do is respond and say, yes, Lord, I hear you. I hear you calling me your child and I will come and walk with you. There is no safer place than in the the will of God. Let's move on. John chapter 13, 4 through 12. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said back to him, the one who has bathed does not need to be washed except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you were clean. And when he had washed their feet, he put, his outer gar- put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, you do not understand what I have done. No, do you understand what I have done? Sorry. 
you know, Jesus could perceive the thoughts of the Pharisees and the people that were out to get him from afar. The Bible tells us that there isn't any place that we can go to hide from God. If we go to the mountaintops, he's there. If we go to Sheol, he's there. If we lay on our bed, he's there with us. He knows when we rise in the morning and when we lay at night. There isn't anything we can hide from God. And so is Jesus. (laughs) I just get this kind of holy imagination going on that Jesus takes off his robe and he lays it on the chair. He takes this basin because there's a basin and there's a pitcher of water. And so he takes it, he pours the water in and he steps up and he starts to wash the feet of the disciples. And we're like, oh, man, kind of weird, but okay, I get it. But understanding that Jesus knows these men He already knows what Judas is going to do. He's got the basin, and he takes Judas's sandals off of his feet, and he takes the water and the soap, and he washes Judas' feet, and he's looking right into the eyes of Judas, knowing that within hours, Judas is going to turn him over to death. That is love. He goes around and he comes to Mark and he comes to Thomas and he's washing these feet and he's looking at the feet and he looks up into the eyes of his, his, these men that he loves like brothers and he looks at them and he's probably thinking, how beautiful are the feet who bring good news, the gospel of Christ because those men took the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. He comes around to Peter. We know Peter. There's a lot of Peterisms going on in his life. I think the only time Peter's feet know anything is when he's exchanging one out of his mouth and putting the next one in. And he comes to Peter, and of course Peter has this dialogue with Jesus, and I can just imagine Jesus thinking like, yes, son, you keep talking, you keep going, because you are going to say some things that you don't, that you don't mean and you will never be able to accomplish, but I love you anyway. Even though you're going to turn your back on me, even though you're going to deny knowing me, I love you. And he went around and he knew that every one of these disciples was going to scatter, that they were going to leave, and he washed their feet. Now, it's really important for us to get the idea behind this because the tradition is, is that when you walk into somebody's home for a meal, that they have someone there, a servant, a slave, who has a basin of water and they take your sandals off and they wash your feet and they clean them and they dry them off with the towel and they might even put some kind of an oil on them to make them smell good and feel good and then they slip back into the sandals and then you go off for dinner. But when the disciples, you know, they, Jesus had sent them ahead to get the room, to prepare the room. And so the disciples, they all show up and there's no one there to wash the feet. The guy that owned the place didn't send a servant over to take care of that need. He left it in their hands. And the custom and kind of the unwritten rule was, if you're the first person showing up where there is no servant, there is no slave to wash your feet, it is your responsibility now to wash the feet of those who come in behind you. I can imagine, and I still think it was something that they had not resolved in their hearts yet, that the disciples were still having the conversation about 
Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus? Who's going to be the one that Jesus is going like, this is the guy? They wanted to know who's the greatest, and I think they were still carrying on that conversation. Because if you're carrying on that conversation and you're still thinking you're going to be the greatest, the problem you run into is if you're the first one in the room, you're going like, ah, dang it. I thought John was going to be here first. And then all of a sudden, someone walks in right behind you, and you're going like, I can't even run back out the door because they all know I was there first. And then they, they're both there kind of at the same time. They're going like, are you washing the feet? No, I'm, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. Greatness does not wash feet. That is a lowly job for a lowly servant. I'm not doing it. Well, I'm not going to do it either. And you can imagine the 12 all going around going like, they may not have said it, but they're all going like, I ain't washing nobody's feet. I ain't washing mine. I'm not washing theirs. They can just do it themselves. I don't care. Dirty feet, I don't care. Because that was low. That, you couldn't do anything lower at a mealtime. That was the lowest thing you could do, is have to wash somebody's feet. And yet what Jesus does is he takes off his outer garment and at that moment he steps off the platform of being the Son of God and he steps down and he becomes the servant to his own disciples who are so self-centered that they can't wash each other's feet. And Jesus gets on his knees and he pours the water into the basin and he wraps the towel and he goes around and he washes each other, all the disciples' feet. And when he's done, he takes his place back again. And we, we just go like, that is just so weird. I mean, listen, I've been in washing services before. I'm okay if my wife wants to wash my feet. But it's a little bit like unnerving to have another guy washing your feet and then putting a little like foot salve on it to make it feel good. It's just kind of, you're kind of going like, all right, dude, that's enough. Stop. (laughs) Football. Yeah. But Jesus, prior to this, in in Matthew 20, he said this, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and who would ever be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has already told them, You guys guys are always talking about who's going to be the greatest. I'm going to tell you, Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the person who takes a place of serving. You want to be great? Learn to be a servant. You want to be, be first in line? Go to the back of the line. You want to be served? Learn how to serve. Because that's what the greatness looks like. And Jesus did it. He didn't come as the one to be served. He served. And he served a lot of people. Remember what he did in his service? What did he do? He took and he made the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. He raised the dead back to life. He fed the multitudes with food. He spoke words of comfort. He brought the balm of Gilead and, and, and took care of the wounds of those who were broken hearted. He served. And then he shows it by getting on his knees and washing the feet of the disciples. He becomes a servant so that they understand what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. 
Paul must have figured this out. He must have heard Peter talking about it, or John, maybe Philip. He knew these brothers, Mark. He knew them. He worked with them. Because in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it says this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You, do you get the implications of this? There is going to come a day when Jesus says, when the Father says, enough, go get the kids, bring them up here, we're going to have a party, and then at that moment, God, Jesus is going to separate everything out. Those who are with him and those who are not with him. And those who are absolutely against him, who tried to destroy them, mainly naming Satan. And Satan is going to come one day and he is going to bow at the foot of Jesus. And he is going to say, you are the Lord, you are the king. And every other person that's ever been born on earth will do exactly the same thing. But what Jesus was doing in, in John's gospel is he was giving a demonstration of what Paul wrote about in Philippians. Let me walk you through it. Jesus knew who he was and that he'd come from God. That's what it tells us in the 13th chapter. And in chapter 17, he says, Father, glorify me in your presence in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is the guest of honor at this dinner table. He is the one that they're all, the reason the disciples showed up there is because Jesus was there. He is honored. He is exalted at this dinner table. And here's what it says in this passage from Philippians. For though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with the with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was God but put his divine nature aside so that he could fulfill the plans of God. Next you notice that in John, Jesus took the role of a servant by taking off his garments, wrapping a towel, a servant's cloth around him at his waist. Here it says in this passage, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In John it says... Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world. Here it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point, um, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In John it says when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And in John it says when he had washed their or resume their place. And in this passage it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him. That a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in the ministry Jesus had to his disciples, he displayed two things for them. First, the pathway to greatness, or as I can say, or can I say it this way, 
glory is found in being a servant to others. That's the pathway to greatness or glory. Second, Jesus set the example. He wanted his disciples to follow. He's the one that said, wash the feet. Take on the role of the servant. And he did that. As he washed his feet, he expressed his love to them in the most deepest and meaningful way he could ever have done it. Jesus doesn't do anything on accident or by, by happenstance. He waited until it was just hours before he went to the cross to wash his disciples' feet. He waited until after he washed his feet to talk to them about the new commandment that he was giving them. That if you love one another, it will be the testimony to the world that I am your God. Matter of fact, he kind of picks up on that. I'm going to finish off real quick here. Give me three minutes. It says, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor, his, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I want you to get it into your mind that Jesus is the king of glory. He is the creator of the universe, of this world. He is the one that is going to rule on high one day. And he took the form of the servant and washed the feet of the very man who's going to betray him and turn him over to death. Because he loved him. Because he loved him. Jesus is telling his disciples that there is no job in the kingdom of God too lowly for them. If Jesus took on the position of a servant and humbled himself and washed their feet as God, then there wasn't anything too menial for a cry, cry, Christ follower to do. And there are a lot of people who are seeking a blessing from God, yet the pathway to that blessing is to be a servant in the body of Christ. Now, I'm sure that you've had the same experience I've had. There are things going on around us. There are jobs that need to be done, tasks that need to be handled. And yet there are people within the body of Christ who when it comes time to sweeping up a little dirt or mopping a floor or picking up the garbage, they kind of take this position and they go like, yeah, you know, so the other day I was down in the valley and I saw a bunch of, okay, how's that floor coming? You want me to go, yeah, you got it, good job. Anyway... You know, I was down there the other day. Hey, somebody should take the garbage out, don't you think? And there's some dishes that need to be washed. And you look at those people and you're kind of like with yourself, you're going like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you pick up a broom? Why can't you wipe off a table? Why can't you wash a dish? Why can't you clean a toilet? Why can't you do something for the kingdom of God as menial as that? And they are seeking a blessing and they keep asking themselves the question, why is God not blessing my life? Because I'm the kind of guy that needs to be served. After all, Jesus died on the cross for me. And God's going like, oh, son, you just don't get it, do you yet, son? Boy, I'm telling you right now, you and I are going to go out to the woodshed. 
We're going to spend some time together. And we're going to keep coming back here until you learn what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this question. Do you have a servant's heart? Do you have a servant's heart? There's only one thing to say after that. Prove it. So really our reflective questions today, I didn't even write them out and put them on a piece of paper. And I know that some of my ADD, ADHD people are going like, i got to have them. But I'm pretty sure you'll remember them. It's only two. And here's what they are. What is Jesus saying or teaching you today? What? Because there's a lot that Jesus just said right here in this passage. There's a lot about love. There's a lot about serving. There's a lot about grace. There's a lot about mercy. There's a lot about his glory. What is Jesus teaching or saying to you today? And the second one is, what, actions, what is the action step you are supposed to take today? What's God calling you to do? Because I know, I know as sure as the sun's going to come up tomorrow, that Jesus is calling each and every one of us to step out and do something. Faith without works is what? Absolutely. Amen? Amen. I'm done. I thought I was going to lose my voice a little, back, a little bit back, but God intervened, and I was able to yell at you for a few more minutes. Praise Jesus. Let me pray for us, because I think this is really important to understand what God is doing in and amongst us. So, our Father, we have heard your words today, and I just simply ask God that whatever it was that I said that is still rumbling around in their head, in your kid's head, that they're thinking about, that they shouldn't be thinking about, that it would just kind of like the fog dissipate, be gone. And the words that you gave to them in their heart and in their mind, that they would come forward, that they can't shake it, they can't get it out of their head. They walk out of the door and all they can think about is what you said to them today. And they will be as miserable as anything until they step into doing what you've called them to do. So I pray for your blessing. I pray for your presence. I pray for your manifold holiness and glory to fall on this church and on your people, God, that we would be a witness to this world about how much we love one another. Do it, Lord, we ask you in your great name. Amen.